This morning's reading is from Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is good to see you. It's good to be with you. Uh, it is good to open the Word with you this morning. Uh, if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. My name is Jonathan, and it is my uh, privilege to open the Scripture and study it together with you this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, for anybody that doesn't, doesn't know me or doesn't know my story, I want to give you just a, a brief snapshot because the concepts that we're going to talk about in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning are something that are, are, are pretty near and dear to my heart. They're really a, a continuation of what we've been studying for the last uh, two weeks because this opening passage, this opening salvo of Ephesians is, is one big prayer on the part of Paul. And the reason that these verses are, are so valuable and important to me is because they speak so much to my own experience of Christianity. So I grew up in and around the church. My father uh, was a pastor for um, just over 30 years, and so I, I grew up from, the, from my earliest memories uh, being in and around the church, hearing the preaching of the Word of God, being exposed to Scripture stories, and sitting in Sunday school and junior church and morning services and evening services and hearing the Word opened up consistently and constantly. And the only problem was that for many of those years, I didn't really understand personally what those things meant for me. So I knew all about who God is, and I knew all about the stories of Scripture, and I probably could have walked you through the plan of salvation, but I didn't really understand what those things meant in my own life. I mean, they, they were exciting as a child, and then as I grew older, the light of the gospel grew more and more dim to me. It faded in its importance. It faded in, in my understanding. I mean, I was a good kid by any external standard. Those that were around me would have said that. They would have recognized that I was a pretty good kid. But my heart that whole time was drifting. And for me, it really wasn't until college that those things began to turn around. But the view that I had prior to, the, prior to that moment when Christ began to turn things around in my heart, my view of things was that the world was full of all this fun and all of these possibilities and all of these exciting things. I mean, that there was so much around that in which I could partake and that this religion that I grew up with was keeping me from it. I felt as if something was being held back. My understanding of Scripture really didn't grow past my understanding of the limitations that I felt it had put on my life. And so because of that, largely I was rejecting the truth of it. But when I was in college, I began to understand faith really for the first time. 
That's where things really started to shift. And God used all kinds of things in my own heart and my life um, for that shift to begin to take place. He used good friends in my life, and he used, uh, he, he used others that were around me to kind of help open my eyes to understand a little bit of what the, what the gospel meant. And he used, uh, in large part, a lot of books and sermons that I had heard to really transform my thinking and my understanding. And I remember the, the first time that my, my mindset really began to change in a substantial fashion, I had listened to a sermon series by a man called R.C. Sproul. Uh, he was a preacher for many, many years and a, t- and a gospel teacher. And as I began to hear him unpack the doctrines of grace, the idea that we are so inherently sinful and wicked that we have no dependency on anything within ourselves and that we are utterly dependent on an external savior for our salvation and our acceptance before God, it was such a transformative idea in my mind. And so through the teachings of Sproul and others, my eyes were open to a whole host of authors that I began to read who helped my understanding. And one of those authors was a man named C.S. Lewis. He's most, most commonly known for writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Narnia series. He wrote some science fiction books as well. But in addition to those things, he was a brilliant Christian scholar. And I remember reading through the book, The Weight of Glory, maybe my favorite of Lewis's theological works other than perhaps mere Christianity. And I remember coming across this quote that will be very familiar to many of you. And for, I hope for some of you, it will be new this morning. It'll hit you hopefully in the same way that it struck me as we dive into this passage. But here was the quote that I came across from Lewis that so defined my understanding of the gospel at that point in my life. He said this, he said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that quote so encapsulated this transition that was happening in my heart because prior to these moments where the gospel began to make some sort of sense to me, my view of the world was that it was something that held promise, that it was something that held satisfaction and joy and meaning and happiness. But my experience in pursuing those things did not bear those things out to be true. And so my understanding of Christianity was that, was that it was trying to tamp down all of these desires in my heart, that it was trying to keep me from something good. And what Lewis explains in such a beautiful fashion is really the teaching of Ephesians chapter 1 in this morning. And it's the idea that, no, 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 the problem is not that you have these desires that need to be kept in. The problem is that your desires are far too small, that you're satisfied by the things in this world when God is going, I have so much more for you. I have something far deeper and far richer, far truer to the experience of what it is to be a human being created in the image of God than where you are trying to find those things. God was not trying to keep me from pleasure, in other words. He was intending for me far deeper pleasures than I could have ever imagined. In the words of one pastor, the human heart is willing to settle for small things even when it has access to infinite joy. So what we read this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, the end of one of Paul's famous prayers, really speaks to this idea. You can find Paul's other prayers, by the way, they're very similar to what we find in Ephesians chapter 1. You can find them later in Ephesians chapter 3, in Philippians 1, in Colossians 1. I urge you to read those. 
And here's the reason why I urge you to read those, because all of these prayers that are given to, to all of these churches uh, are, are, with different circumstances, are really very similar in his prayer at the core, because these churches are filled with people who are suffering. I mean, this is a time in the course of history and in a place in history where it is very dangerous to be a Christian. This is a pluralistic society, meaning they didn't really care what you believed. You could follow whatever God or philosophy you wanted to believe in and follow, so long as you didn't claim that it was the exclusive way. And the problem with Christianity, according to the perspective of the world around us, and it's as true today as it was back then, is its exclusivity. It's the idea of Christianity that says, no, there is no other way to God than other, through, other than through Jesus Christ. There is no other means of salvation other than through him. And so as Paul writes to these churches who are experiencing persecution and suffering, where these people have lost their jobs because of their faith, they've lost their homes and their possessions, they've been imprisoned, in some circumstances even killed. What's interesting about Paul's prayer is that he doesn't address those things. And think about where Paul is even writing this from. He's writing this letter from prison. He's been arrested by religious zealots. And what we know about the end of his life is that he's going to die by persecution. As did all of the other disciples of Jesus Christ, other than John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos and died a natural death. But he only died a natural death after being boiled alive and somehow surviving. I mean, the disciples knew what suffering was, and Paul certainly understood it as well. But what's curious is that in all of these prayers of Paul, you never see him asking God for a change in circumstance. Now, don't misunderstand what that means. It doesn't mean that we can't pray for changes in our circumstance. It doesn't mean that we can't pray for the individual things we experience in our life. In the pastoral prayer that we, that we just uh, went through together, what we prayed for were those things. We prayed for circumstance. We prayed for particular groups of people and the things that they're walking through. There's nothing wrong with praying those things. I mean, in fact, we're even instructed to do it. In 1 in Timothy, we're instructed to pray for our leaders. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, he instructs that we're to pray for our daily bread. In the book of Peter, we're instructed to pray about our anxieties and our worries. No matter how large or small the issue, God welcomes his children to come to him in prayer. But what I mean to draw out is this. When given the opportunity to pray for the thing that is most on his heart... Paul prays for something deeper. And you really find the core of it in verses 18 and 19. Here's what he prays. He prays for this church that you, would, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So why does he focus on this? Of all the things he could have prayed for these people who are suffering, why does he pray for this? He prays for this because if you have this understanding that he's talking about, if the Lord opens your, your heart, the eyes of your heart, to understand the truth of what he's declaring here, you will be able to handle all of life's circumstances, no matter how good or how bad they are. And understand what the converse of that is as well. What that also means is that if you don't have this understanding and your life is good, your life is even great, what it will lead you to ultimately is weakness. 
It will lead you to depend on your circumstances for your joy. And understand this, at some point or another in your life, that joy in circumstances will fade. I mean, think about the best case scenario. If you live to be 100 in good health the whole time, the other side of that is you will have experienced everyone that you know having gone before you. Not many amens on that one. Conversely, if you don't have this truth and this understanding and your life is bad, you'll be crushed. That's the promise that Paul is going after in this moment. If you are dependent on good circumstances and you don't experience them and you don't have anything to fall back on, you will find yourself crushed. What Paul is saying here to the believer in Christ is, look, in your possession are riches beyond anything you can imagine. So what are these benefits And how do we access them? Look with me, if you would, at verse 15. Here's what he starts with. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. So here's the first thing we need to understand is who is the audience he's speaking to? He is speaking particularly to Christians in this moment. And the reason we know that is he says, I I, I know of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question for us, if we want to have the kind of strength that can stand up in good and in bad circumstances, if we can have strength that isn't dependent on circumstance, where you need to start is this, what do you believe? I mean, what is it you believe? At the very core of who you are, what is it that makes you tick? I mean, are we all just spinning on this blue marble with no intention, purpose, or, or reason? Is there intentionality to your life? Is there a God? Is there, crea- is there a creator? Is there something upon whom we have reliance? See, most religions are based on the notion that your behavior is what's most important. That if you can do the right thing and observe these particular holy days and avoid these particular behaviors and obey this certain set of laws, then you will find your meaning, you will find happiness. But the Bible never starts there. In fact, the Bible is going to say that if you're living your life that way, you are not free. In fact, it's more like you're imprisoned. You're enslaved to a behavior. You haven't found freedom in Christ. You are enslaved to the law. And what I would also point out is that if you believe that there is no maker, if you believe that there is nothing outside of yourself on whom you are dependent, if you believe that there is no God at all, then almost by necessity you hold to the very same ideal as those who are religious. You believe that by necessity your behavior is what's most important. That there is some sort of standard of right living, behavior, interaction with others. There is some sort of system that you have aligned yourself to. In other words, to some extent or another, you have defined yourself as a God. You've determined that these are the acceptable ways to live, that these are the acceptable things to do, and you've determined that in order to be a a good person, a reasonable citizen of the world, whatever it is you want to define it as, that you have to obey these particular standards. And what I would extend to you is that even to the extent that you can define good behavior in your own heart and life, you have not actually obtained that behavior. That if your behavior is dependent on treating everybody with respect, there have certainly been moments in your life where you have failed to do that. See, the truth is, even if you've developed your own moral standard, you can't attain it. And what Paul's going to say, by implication in this text, is 
Do you believe that it is only because of Jesus Christ that you have a relationship with the Father? Are you dependent on anything else? Because what he's saying is it doesn't matter how great your doctrine is. It doesn't matter how faithful your church attendance is. It doesn't matter how much you give to the poor or the needy or even the cause of Christ. If you are not dependent on Jesus Christ for your relationship with God, you don't have a relationship. It's a scary idea. It's what leads Jesus to say in Matthew 25 that there will be some who say in that day when they're standing before God the Father, didn't we do many good works in your, in your name? Didn't we do all of these incredible works? Didn't we attend church? Didn't we memorize scripture? Didn't we give to the poor? Didn't we visit those in prison? Didn't we do all of these great things? And Jesus says to them, depart from me. I never knew you. See, what Jesus is saying inherently in Matthew 25 is the same thing Paul is saying here. It starts with me. It starts with this relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you do not know God. See, this is where Christianity subverts everyone's expectations. It's what's so shocking and beautiful about the story in Luke 7 where Jesus is gathered together with the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, these people who were so observant of the law, who had, who had accomplished the jot and the tittle of what was expected of a good religious person. And as they're sitting around dining with Jesus Christ, it says that a woman of the city came in in tears. She breaks down, falls at the feet of Jesus Christ. She's now in a room with men, which in that day would have been scandalous in and of itself. And as she breaks down in tears, she begins to clean Jesus' feet with her own tears and wipe, wipe the mud off of his feet with her hair. Her recognition of her sin, in this case of her sexual depravity, of her own brokenness, of whatever experience had led her to that moment in her life, her experience of her sin had led her to dependence on Jesus Christ. And what Jesus says to that woman, surrounded by all of these religious men who did not actually know him, as he says, go in peace, your faith has saved you. Now, how is it that a woman who hadn't darkened the door of the synagogue, who hadn't done right according to the law, who had violated every cultural and ethic, ethical and ethnic expectation of her day, how is it that that, that woman finds salvation? When a group of pastors in that day did not, because of the same dependence on Jesus Christ. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So here's what he's saying. He's saying your faith in Jesus will lead to a life of love, that your faith will lead to practice. In other words, uh, your belief is primary, it is paramount, it is the most important thing about your relationship with God. But inevitably, that seed, that kernel of truth that begins to take root in your heart will start to transform and change your life. It will start to change the way that you behave and the way that you think. And so the problem for us is that we often get caught in one of two errors. We either see somebody who claims to be a Christian and we see them participating in a behavior that we think is abhorrent or wicked or sinful, and we think, well, a Christian would never do that. And perhaps the mistake that we've made in that moment is we've replaced faith with behavior as the thing that's primary. But the converse of that is that we begin to justify our sin and we say, well, it's only your belief that counts. And we forget that new beliefs begin to play out in your behavior. 
So not only does your faith lead to a change of affection and behavior, but according to Paul, by implication in this text, he's going to say it leads to a love towards what? All the saints. Now think about what that means for this particular context. You're talking here about a people who very strongly identified themselves by their ethnicity, by their race, by their religion, by their politics, by their creed. And we very naturally do the very same sort of thing. We identify ourselves naturally as belonging to a particular group or belonging to a particular tribe. And so for some of you, maybe this was borne out in very strong and powerful ways. Maybe you identify very strongly with your family. I mean, your family unit, the family you grew up in, is so tight, it is so bonded, it is so connected to itself that that is your primary identity. Or given where we live in the country geographically, maybe your roots are primarily in your ethnicity. Maybe you're a good German family, and so you believe in everything that goes along with that, right? I mean, you're having the raw beef and onions and the beer and the brats and the cheese and everything that goes with it. That is your identity, right? We are good Germans, or whatever your ethnic heritage is. Maybe you find it in your race. Maybe you find it in your political ideology. But what Paul is saying in this moment is that when true faith takes root in your life, it begins to transform your behavior. It begins to transform your affections, particularly towards other believers in Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is when you come into a relationship with Jesus, you are brought into a new tribe. You've received a new family. You're part of a new people. Your commonality is no longer around your ethnicity or your race or your politics or your family or any other thing with which you might primarily identify yourself. To be in Christ is to be a new creature. It is to be part of a new family. It is to identify yourself with a new family primarily. And what Paul is saying in this passage is that when your commonality is around Jesus, that new commonality is so strong that it supersedes what might otherwise have been a cause for division. So let me give you the best illustration I've ever personally seen on this. Some of you have heard this story, so for that I apologize, but several years ago, we were, uh, we were in Italy. We were at an at a international church in northern Italy. So there's this church that's gathered up. I think it was made of something like 45 different national groups from around the world. And because of its location and because of Italy's particular immigration policies, this particular city in northern Italy had become a hub for people that were fleeing persecution or fleeing war in northern Africa. And so I remember in one particular morning as we gathered together on a Sunday morning, we came in about an hour before service for prayer, and I remember standing uh, in the back of the room with the pastor as there were all of these little groups of people gathered around the room praying together. And there was one man on one side of the room and another man who had just come into the room, uh, and as they saw each other, these two African, African men raced to each other and embraced and hugged and greeted each other with a kiss on the cheek, and they sat down and they began to pray together. And the pastor leaned over to me and he said, do you see those, those two men right there? And I said, yeah, I see them. He goes, well, do you, he goes, let me tell you about them. He said, um, back where they come from in their, their particular uh, portion of northern Africa, he goes, their families right now are engaged in a war. They're from warring tribes. Their families are at war. Their brothers are actively trying to kill each other. Both of these men fled northern Africa in order to get away from the violence and in order to get away from the cruelty. Both of these men, through the providence and the sovereignty of God, came to know Jesus Christ. Both of these men ended up at this church 
and right now as their brothers and sisters are dying and fighting, these two men are praying together. Now what is it that could possibly lead two men who have nothing in common to be able to sit with one another, embrace, and pray? It's this relationship with Christ. See, true faith leads you to a real love towards people who you might otherwise have dismissed. And Paul says, now this is going to begin to bear itself out in real ways, and this is where we get into the meat of the text here. He says this in verse 18. Here's my prayer for you, church at Ephesus, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? So let me illustrate it for you this way. Because what Paul is talking about here is the idea of what it actually is to grow up in the faith. He's saying, you know Jesus Christ. You have faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, you have a love for all of the saints. You've even seen your faith in Christ begin to transform your life as your life is borne out. He says, but here's what I hope for you. I hope that you would discover the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of his power. So let me illustrate it this way. Uh, For the past year and a half, my my brother-in-law and his wife uh, have been fostering a little boy, a little boy named Charlie. So Brady and Emily uh, have been fostering Charlie, and so they got him. I think it was within the first week that he was born. It might have even been within the first couple of days. They got a call from the state saying, hey, can you come pick up this little boy? We need a family who's going to take him. And so they took him into their home, and they had no idea how long this was going to last. They didn't know if it'd happen for a week or a month or a year. They didn't know if he'd ever be available for adoption or what the situation was, but they took him into his home and they they began to love Charlie. And so as Charlie was brought around our family at Christmas and other holidays and things like that, we began to love Charlie because we're exposed to him. We see him, we we know him, we're, we're holding him, we're praying for him, we're praying for Brady and Emily. And so over the past year and a half, Charlie has gotten to know Brady and Emily incredibly well. In fact, they're the only parents that he's really ever known. And likewise, Brady and Emily have gotten to know Charlie pretty well. And they love him and they care for him. They provide for him. They meet his needs. And so this week, Brady and Emily were able to adopt Charlie. So Charlie is now Charlie Hollenbeck. He's got a new name and a new family. And so we're, we're all excited and we're jazzed and we're so pumped for, for Brady and Emily and for Charlie. We're so excited to see all of this happen. But here's the amazing part. Charlie, at this stage in the game, has no idea what all of this means. Life for him is continuing on with the people that he loves. His needs are still being met. He has no idea what all the benefits of his adoption are. He doesn't realize the implications of having new cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents He doesn't realize all the benefits of what what an inheritance actually means. What does it mean to be part of the family? He doesn't realize all the benefits of what it means to have a new last name. He didn't sit down with Brady and Emily and talk through their financials and what's their plan for the future and where do they foresee him going to college and so he could make a determination on whether this was something he wanted to be part of. See, a child is only concerned with right here and right now. It's all they know even though that child has access to more than they could ever imagine. 
And in the same way, the way that we initially interact with God is that we start out as infants. And it's only as we grow up in Jesus Christ that we begin to understand the implications of that relationship. And so Paul's prayer for us is that we would stop being children and that we would start to grow up and realize what it is to be a child of God, what it is that lies before you. Paul's prayer is that the Christian would grow in his understanding of who God is. And so he lists three particular areas that we'll move through quickly that explain who God is in our lives. And the first he starts with in verse 18 is this. He says, I I would pray that you know what is the hope to which he's called you. So literally, here's what that means. That you would know the hope of God's calling. And hope in this context is not the same way that we use the word hope. He's not talking here about wishful thinking. I hope this will happen. I hope I'll get this someday. What he's saying when he uses the word hope is the same way that the New Testament always uses this word. And this is a definition that I gained from somebody else. A hope is a confident joy that is rooted in a confident future. A confident joy that is rooted in a confident future. He's saying because you know where your future lies, because you know where your relationship stands with God, because you know where your destiny lies, you can have joy right now. So in verse 3, he said it this way. He said, because you have been blessed by Christ in every spiritual blessing, something you already attained, that that is your hope. It is the promise for the future. And what Paul then encourages us to do is to consider that calling. What are the implications of that? Paul actually dives into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Think about the implications. If the reason that you were called is not because you're great, and it's not because you're wise, and it's not because you're strong, but that the reason you were called was to show God's glory and goodness to the world. This is what we've been talking about for the last two weeks. But if he chose you, it means that you have assurance. It means that his love was set on you before you could even attempt to do anything to gain it. If God chose you before the foundations of the world, it means that there is usefulness in your life. It means that what you are doing now, the activities in which you partake, the job that you work, the family that you're given are not an accident and they are not a waste. But he has a plan for your life. It means you have confidence that you get to share the good news boldly with everyone. Because God doesn't have a type that he's looking for. And we thank him for that. Second, he prays that that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
Now, I want you to notice that language because it is easy to read that verse and think about the fact that we have an inheritance of God. But did you notice that's not what he's talking about? He already mentioned that in verse 11, that we have an inheritance in God. But here, Paul flips the script, and what he says is this, I want you to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in you. That you are his inheritance. That God's wealth is bound up in you. So, I mean, you think about those things that you would do if there was a fire at your home in the middle of the night, and what is the first thing you would do? For me, it's easy. I would go get my two sons and my wife, and I would get them out of the house. Why? Because everything else I have may be of some value, but my wife and my two boys are irreplaceable. They're invaluable. They are more important to me than anything else in that home. My wealth is tied up in them. What this passage is saying is that in no, in no kind of vaguely emotional or sensitive terms, I mean, this isn't God trying to play with your emotions. What he's saying is, in a very real way, you are irreplaceable to him. That God placed a value on your life, on your person, on who you are. And that when humanity was in rebellion against God and destined toward an eternity apart from Him, the Father sent the Son to rescue you because you're invaluable. He sent the Son, as it were, into the flaming house to pull you out and save your life. And verse 18 is going to say that you are so valuable to God that you are His inheritance, that God, the creator of the world, the sustainer of all things, the one who holds time and eternity in His hands, views you as His riches. And this truth is magnified on a far greater scale when you move beyond the individual into the collective because here's what verse 23 says. It says, The church, which is His body, is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And follow what that means. What that means is that in the the church, God is saying there is the fulfillment of God's own potential. Now, he's not saying the church is God, but what he's saying is that the church so exemplifies as as a whole, the saints of all the ages and all the times and all the places of all the world exemplify this fullness of God. That the church represents the wholeness of who God is. That this is how valuable God finds his family. That he views us as, in, as his inheritance. He shows his fullness. And do you understand then what Lewis was trying to say in that paragraph? That the simple affirmations and the simple pleasures of this world can't even touch this kind of depth. They can't even touch this kind of love. And so what, what would happen if you came to experience this truth in a way that allowed you to appreciate the affirmations and the simple pleasures of this world without being defined by them. And that's ultimately what the gospel is going to reveal to us as one of its implications, that because we understand who God is, we can appreciate the simple pleasures of this world on a deeper level because they don't terminate on themselves. They always point us to Christ. So simple pleasures of food and drink and family and friends become even more meaningful when we see them as just shadows of what our relationship with the Father is like. 
And finally, he says this in verse 19, know the immeasurable greatness of his power. And he continues to explain that in verse 20. The greatness of his power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And here's what God is trying to communicate to you in this verse. What he's saying is that God brought his full power to bear at the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that you may receive new life. Think of the magnitude of this. That God's love is so intent for you that before time even existed, before the world was even spoken into creation, before you were even born into this world, God set his love on you. And that God brought all of his power to bear in the resurrection to raise Christ from the dead. Why? So that you could have eternal life. Do you understand the magnitude that God is placing on you in this text? Do you see how far surpassing The depth and the love and the grace of God is in these words. That Jesus stands over everything in this world so that you might grow in grace and that your life might bring glory to him. And that in the process of that happening, others are drawn to our Savior. This is the process of discipleship, by the way. And all of these things are available to you as a child of God who needs to grow into the wonder of who he is. So finally, how do we access these things? Look at verse 17. We'll be quick. He says, I pray that the the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. So he says, I want you to grow in this knowledge, but this isn't just a head knowledge. This isn't just an affirmation of your mind declaring that these things are true. This is an experiential knowledge. It's a transformative knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. And here's what he's trying to say. To the extent that you are not living in the hope of his calling in your life, and the knowledge that you as part of the church are his inheritance and that his cosmic power was brought to bear on your life, you need the Holy Spirit to enlighten your heart. So simply, how do we do that? I mean, earlier, as we were singing the song, we we sang these words together. We sang all to Jesus, I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessing fall on me. All to Jesus, I surrender. Now I feel the sacred flame. It's experiential language. Oh, the joy of full salvation. Glory, glory to his name. So some of you are saying, yeah, I would love to experience that, but how? I think first... We can pray for ourselves the same prayer that Paul prays for us. What does it look like to go to the Father and say, God, I want to know you this way. I want to experience the beauty of who you are. I want to experience the fullness of my salvation. I want to grow in my knowledge of who you are. I want to grow in this relationship. Help me understand what I already have in you. I think secondly, we can meditate on these truths. I mean, sometimes we're so busy doing and reading and even doing good and right things like praying that we don't stop to think and hear from God. 
I mean, what would it look like as part of your daily rhythm to take five or ten minutes and to read over the course of this next week verses 17 through 19 and just consider the implications? If we know that the word of God does not return void, what does it look like to actually think about these things? And finally, the call is to rest in the finished work of Christ. It's to realize that you have received hope because Christ gave his hope up. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? As he's praying and weeping out to the Father, let this cup pass from me. Where he's so intense in that moment that it says that blood were like great drops of sweat dripping from his body. That Jesus gave up his power that he made himself powerless and went to the cross so that you could be assured that the God who has all the power would use it for his glory and your joy. That you have become the inheritance of God because Jesus purchased you when you were unable to purchase yourself. Because Christ has finished the work, we can rest completely in him. Oh, that we as a people, as a local church meeting in this place, would have our hearts grabbed by the beauty of this text, to have our lives transformed by the fullness of the gospel. May it be said of Disciples Church that we are people who are growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that because of that, all glory is due to him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you did all of these things on our behalf. I thank you that you obeyed your Father's will, that you came and gave yourself. I thank you that you gave up your inheritance, the riches that you were experiencing in eternity past with the Father you are willing to lay down and become powerless to die. I thank you that because of these things, we know that we can stand affirmed, assured of our salvation, that we can be confident and bold in the gospel that we proclaim, and that we can rest in the sureness of who you are. So God, work these truths into our heart in this morning. Help us rely on Jesus Christ as our everything, having our faith wholly in him and him alone. May we rest sure and secure in the person of Jesus. We pray these things.